You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, we are in a series called Walking in the Steps of Jesus, and uh, we are walking through the book, the gospel of John Mark, of Mark. Uh, this is, this is the, the invitation of the search and cry of every single heart, and that is a, a sense of purpose, direction, uh, a sense of why, uh, the answers that you're looking for in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your heart, uh, you'll never be satisfied until you understand why you were crafted and designed. That answer is found in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Now, there is one Gospel, but there are four accounts. And these four accounts give four different views of Jesus' life. It's, it's these this, what is the gospel is the question that some would say. Well, it's not just headline news. It's not just breaking news. Jesus is alive. It's much bigger than that because we can read the headlines and there's a new one the next day. We can read breaking news of who won a primary or some kind of catastrophic event in the world and it is old news tomorrow. There is news that is so breaking, so phenomenal, so life-changing, is that it's breaking news every day. And that it is a, it is not, it's never old news. It's a living news. And that is the gospel. The word gospel means good, life-changing news, good news. And there is only one gospel, the life of Christ, but it is given in four different accounts. And each is unique. Each refer to a group of people that they're writing to and, and uh, who wrote it. We talked about this last week. And uh, guys, in four weeks, uh, we celebrate the most important holiday in, in our faith as Christians, and that is Easter, right? It's the resurrection. And this year, it's on March 27th. And even now, I want you guys to be praying about who's going to fill the seat next to you uh, on Easter, March 27th. Uh, you know, there, there are movies that are breaking out all this month, right? I mean, Batman versus Superman opens up Easter weekend, but bigger than Batman versus Superman is uh, Jesus breaking out of the tomb. And uh, I tell you, uh, bring somebody with you on Easter. On our way to Easter, we're, we're, we're walking through the Gospel of Mark. So you can bring someone at any time. The Gospel of Mark is a great introduction to those who want to know Christ. Uh, who is Mark? Well, Mark is actually the name of a guy named John Mark in the Bible. He is the cousin of another guy in the Bible whose name is Barnabas. Barnabas is a guy who kind of took the Apostle Paul under his wing. John Mark traveled with the Apostle Paul. John Mark traveled with the Apostle Peter. And John Mark uh, also uh, was one of these guys that was, was the first person to write down the story of Christ as dictated by Peter the Apostle. So what you have in Mark is the very first account of the life of of Jesus. It's the shortest, it's the fastest, it's action packed, it rolls. I mean, entire events are described in one verse. So, uh, what we're going to attempt to do is we're going to fly over the life of Jesus and focus on the big picture. And I challenge you to read the Gospel of Mark. You can actually read it in about an hour or two. Uh, it's real simple to read, but I want you to stretch it out over the course of the next four weeks of this series. Uh, here's the world of Jesus. It's kind of a recap of what's going on in Mark. Rome has conquered the majority of the world during the time of Jesus. 
Uh, it was filled with a heavy hand, uh, lots of military presence, and uh, it was heavy. It was harsh. There were uh, Roman leaders uh, overseeing local Jewish leadership, and the local Jewish leaders were trying their best to work with Roman leaders, but they didn't like each other. Neither group enjoyed uh, their presence, and, and there was this sense of constant anxious uh, turmoil under the surface, a bit of, uh, you know, angry zealots were kind of trying to overthrow this, the Roman government, and there was this political religious group called the Sanhedrin that was filled with a group of people called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And the Sanhedrin, they were the religious slash political group running the lives of the Jewish people under the heavy hand of Rome. Religion was cold and heartless. Life was hard and hopeless. And people were looking and praying for help. That's the stage for the life of Jesus. Now, I remember as a kid, I loved comic books. Anybody here love comic books as a kid? All right, how many of you love comic books as a grown-up? All right, several of you. All right, I'm not a comic guy. I'm not a, you know, as an adult. But I loved the comics as a kid. And I, you know, they were, they were simple. They were the simple days of comics when a hero was a hero and a bad guy was a bad guy. Now it's like the lines are blurred in a lot of novels and graphic novels and comics. But I remember uh, I had my favorites, you know. Uh, I liked Superman. Uh, I liked Batman. But my favorite was Flash. Man, Flash was the boss. And uh, I don't know what it was about Flash. He didn't have but one power. He could run really fast. And I somehow I think maybe we like Flash because we think we can run really fast. So maybe, I mean, we know we can't pick up a train, you know, uh, but we might be able to run fast. I, I think that's why people like Batman so much. But I loved comic books, and, uh, and I loved Jesus as a young boy. I gave my life to Christ at 13, and, and I thought, man, Jesus, he walked on water. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He calmed the storms. He fed thousands. And as I grew, I realized that Aquaman and Flash were not real. And I had to come to that realization that maybe, maybe Jesus isn't real either. That maybe some of these things that I read about the life of Jesus were like some comic hero for the ancients. And I had to come to that decision on my own whether I was going to believe that this Jesus was the real deal. That he really did walk on water and could pick up a train and could run really fast, whatever, that Jesus was truly the hero. That's, that's the question that we are asked as we read the Gospels. It's three questions that if we answer will transform our life. And those questions are simply, did Jesus live? Did Jesus die? And did Jesus rise? Those are the questions of the four Gospel accounts. And what we're doing is we're unpacking the life of Jesus to find out who the real Jesus is. We live in a culture that is trying to reinvent him every day. Is he a hippie or is he Rambo? Is he Mr. Rogers with a beard and sandals? Or is he some kind of anti-terror, terrorist kind of figure? Who is he? Have we clipped the nails of the Lion of Judah? Who is the real Jesus, one of the greatest privileges and challenges we have as believers, if you are a Christian, and that is to reveal the real Jesus. So we've got to get this right. I love this image here. Take a look at this. This is the picture of the name of Jesus 
in Hebrew and in Greek. If you were alive during the time of Christ, this is how he would have written his name. This is how Mark, how John Mark, every time you see the word Jesus in the book of John Mark, that is how he would have written it. Years later, it was translated into Greek. And over to the left, uh, you'll see, or on your right, that is what Jesus would have looked like in the Greek manuscripts. Later, he was translated into Latin, and then after Latin, into the languages of the world. But I want you to take a look at that. That is Yeshua. Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus is a real person of history that walked this earth. And when we read the gospel account through the eyes of John Mark, we are confronted with the very real question, did this actually happen? Did he actually heal the sick? Was he actually causing dead people to come back to life? Was he healing crippled hands and crippled legs? Did he truly cause someone who was on their deathbed to get up again? Is it possible that he really get crucified and was he stolen or did he rise again from the dead? This is the question that, Don, that, that, that John Mark asks us. Last week, John established for us, Mark established for us that Jesus is God in the flesh and that God, uh, that Jesus has all authority on earth and in heaven over Satan, over sickness and over sin. And what happens now is this Jesus who everybody loved all of, a start, all of a sudden starts to be hated and the tables get turned and even his own family begin to turn on him. Uh, one thing we know for sure is that Jesus is not a safe person. He's not safe for thinkers. He's not safe for the religious. Even for his followers, Jesus has a way of wrecking your life and wrecking my life, calling everyone to a different level and a different way for three years, his disciples questioned him on almost everything he did. Even the disciples of John the Baptist were constantly asking him, are you really the one? And even at his crucifixion, while he was yet in the grave, his disciples had wondered if they had missed it. It wasn't until the resurrection that their eyes were finally opened and illuminated to the fullness of to the fullness of his plan. They got glimpses of it. They were able to declare who he was, but then they would turn around and run from it. And there was this constant sense of who really is Jesus because it doesn't fit the mold of what I think. So what Jesus does is he turns over the tables of our life and our thinking. And all of a sudden, the questions and the accusations begin to flow. And all of a sudden, this loved man by everyone turns controversial. So today... I want to talk about the controversy. The controversy begins. What happens in John Mark over the next two chapters, the Gospel of Mark gives us this sense of attack after attack on Jesus. So let's take a look at him and see what it means for us. By the way, before we dive into this portion today, I want you to realize as you're reading Mark or if you're reading Matthew and Luke or John or any of the letters in the New Testament, the way that Jesus treated people then, you need to understand this, is the way that he treats us now. He doesn't 
change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't grow. He doesn't learn. He doesn't react. He doesn't update. There's not a 2016 version of Jesus. He is the same. And what he does and how he responds to people is the way he responds to everyone in this room today. You need to understand that first thing as you read the scriptures. And second thing, the way that he treats people then is the way he expects us to treat people now. In fact, in John 20, 21, he tells the disciples, if the Father sent me, now I send you. Follow my example. Do as I have done. Now you are to do what I do. Guys, listen. This is important as we read it. Jesus, the way he responds to people then is how he will respond to you today. And how Jesus responds to people then is how we are to respond to people today. And that's part of the controversy of who Jesus is. So let's dive in. The controversy begins. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 is where we left off last week, so let's jump in right there. First, we're going to look at, at, uh, at some of the at five accusations upon Jesus in, in a two-chapter period. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went uh, out beside the lake, and a large crowd began uh, to come to him, and he began to teach them. And as he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, uh, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me, Jesus told him. Now, I want you to realize that Jesus was inviting someone to follow him who wasn't even interested in following him. This is a guy who is simply at work ripping people off. That's what he does as a tax collector, and he wasn't part of the crowd looking for Jesus. He was simply at work doing what he does to rip people off, and Jesus says, follow me, and then Levi got up and followed him. It's like getting picked last in P.E. Anybody? Okay. <laughs> Let's see who the truthful people are. Who's e I don't even want to ask this. Who's ever been picked near the end in P.E.? Okay, a few of you. How many of you, <laughs> you're always in the front? You liars. <laughs> All right, here's the deal. If there was a guy who would be the last guy picked in P.E., it would be Levi right here, the tax collector. This is like the lowest man on the totem pole of who should be a disciple of Jesus. What's the big deal? Why was he hated so much? Well, he basically pulled taxes for Rome to be used in Rome, not there. It was taxation without representation. Taxed by Rome, used in Rome, he was robbing locals. He made his living off skimming off the taxes. For instance, if I said taxes were $10, I would charge you 20 keep 10 give Rome the 10 and that's how I made my living. And to top it off, he wasn't Roman, he was Jewish. So he was considered a civil, legal, and social outcast in the community. He was considered a traitor. He worked for the government in which they hated and were occupied by. Then Jesus says, yeah, nobody else in PE wants to pick you, Levi, but you, you come, follow me, you're on my team. So you can imagine the controversy because here's what happens. Later that afternoon, he goes to Levi's house to have dinner, and this is challenge number one. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many, everybody say many, many tax collectors 
and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. A lot of lost people there. It wasn't just the disciples and, and Levi. Levi gathered, brought a bunch of his other tax collector friends. There were some local sinners, some local people that were partiers, wild people. We don't know exactly who they are, but they weren't tax collectors and they were considered sinners. It says, verse 16, when... Uh, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here's the first accusation that we're going to look at, is you are hanging out with the wrong people. You hang out with the undesirable. See, what's the big deal? You know, dinner at Levi's, it's just some people... To eat dinner meant that you were in relationship with someone. It meant that you considered that person a friend. And rabbis had very strict rules about who they could break bread with. And here's Jesus eating with them. And the accusation is you eat, you fellowship, you sit down, you hang out with the wrong people. Here's the next accusation. It's found in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Here's the next accusation upon Jesus, is you're not doing things the way that we do them. Every good Jewish person fasted every Monday and every Thursday. Even John's disciples were fasting. And he says, even John's disciples who are on your side are doing it. Why aren't you? See, Jesus had this constant accusation. You don't hang out with the people we like to hang out with, and you don't do things that we, that we do them. And here's the third one, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, uh, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some heads of grain, if they were doing that to eat. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Here's the third accusation that they made against Jesus, is you're not following the rules. Jesus, you're not following the traditions and the rules. Guys, you need to understand the Sabbath in the mind of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and in the times of people there. On the Sabbath, which was Saturday, the seventh day of the week, you were not to do anything. You had to fix your meals on Friday so that you could do nothing on Saturday except eat them. You were not allowed to do yard work. You were not allowed to do any cleaning. You were not allowed to do anything that exerted any kind of energy whatsoever on the Sabbath. So here are the disciples simply picking grain to eat, and they're like, no, you're breaking the rules. Mark 3, 1, on the Sabbath, Jesus sees a man with shriveled hands on the Sabbath, and they were watching and waiting to attack him because they knew that Jesus healed people. And this is what happened in verse 5. He looked at the Pharisees because they were waiting to jump on him because he knew, they knew he was going to heal this guy. And Jesus was angry and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the beginning of the death of Jesus. He broke the Sabbath. He wasn't following the rules. He healed a man on the Sabbath and they wanted to kill him. He was defying their religious system. 
And in chapter 3, verse 9 through 12, Jesus begins to heal more and more people, and he begins to cast out more and more demons, and massive crowds from all over the area begin to travel more and more, and the crowds get bigger and bigger. And by verse 13 through 19, the crowds get so big that John Mark says that it's at that point that Jesus picks the 12 disciples in order to help him to pray for people and to preach the kingdom of God. And then comes the next accusation in Mark 3.20. His family shows up at one of Jesus' gigs and tries to get him to settle down and come home. Jesus is preaching and the house is packed. Thousands and thousands of people are following him around everywhere. And his family, his mom included, says, we need to get Jesus home. He's out of line. Look at verse 20 of chapter 3. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. His own family did not understand who he was. And this is the fourth accusation, is Jesus, you have lost your mind. You are a crazy person. So they're saying, you know, you hang out with the wrong people. You don't do things the way we do them. You don't follow the rules. You have absolutely lost your mind. You are crazy. You're not thinking clearly. And then here's the last one in Mark 3.22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. They began to accuse Jesus that his power came from the devil. And here's the fifth accusation. Jesus, you are demon-possessed. Now, can you imagine looking at Jesus in the face and telling him, you are demon-possessed? Just the thought of that kind of freaks me out a little bit, you know? I'm surprised there wasn't like some kind of lightning bolt that came down and struck him dead on the spot. But what Jesus said is almost the equivalent of a spiritual lightning bolt. So here's the accusations. You hang out with the wrong people. You don't do things the way we do. You don't follow the rules. You have lost your mind. You're not thinking right, and you are demon-possessed. You are controlled by evil spirits. Now, let's take a look at his response to each one of these accusations. Each one of these attacks, Jesus does respond to, and his response reveals a lot about who Jesus is and why it made such a big deal uh, that they were even more and more angry at his response. Here's the first accusation. You hang out with the wrong people. Eat with tax collectors and sinners. By the way, um, this is not the party Jesus that we so much like to talk about. I've talked to people and they're like, you know, they, I've seen these ridiculous forward posts on Facebook where it's this, they use that passage and they talk about how Jesus is a party animal. How Jesus loves to party. It's the party, Jesus. You wouldn't know the real Jesus. He likes to party. He likes to just like pour the pour the heavy drinks and turn up the music. Because Jesus is showed up, right? And they like to, we don't under, you know, and they kind of twist and just abuse this verse. Jesus' response tells us exactly that this is not the party, Jesus, that you like to think that he is. I'm I, I can't imagine, by the way. Uh, what the people who were his guests thought when he said this, because this was his response, uh, verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. I'm here for the sickos. Could you imagine hanging with Jesus and you're like, ha, Jesus is with us. Ah, who are you? Go, 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 yeah. And Jesus says, hey, hey, settle down, Pharisees. I've come for the sick. And you're like, huh? You're like, you're over here like, go, 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 what? You, I, I'm not sick. I'm fine. I, 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 there's nothing wrong with me. Can you imagine hanging out with Jesus thinking you're hanging out with me because you think I have a problem? Jesus would answer, yes, you do. And when you acknowledge that, you'll get to find me. I'm not sure I like that statement either because I don't think I'm sick. The moment we think we no longer need a doctor, we move outside the realm of the Holy Spirit and we become a Pharisee. We can't sit with Jesus until we understand that we are sick and sin and need God. Paul himself called himself the chief of sinners. And you think, well, but I, but I always thought that we're not supposed to hang around people like that. You know, I thought that we're not, you know, we're supposed to be like with church people all the time and supposed to go to church things all the time. We're not supposed to go places like that. Why did he spend so much time with spiritually sick people? Because that's what he spent his life doing. He spent his life with sick people people, with spiritually sick people, remember this, the way that Jesus treated people then is the way that he treats people now, is that Jesus was saying this, and this is the big idea, is that Jesus is bigger than our hate and judgmental attitudes. Jesus is one who calls us to radical change, radical love, and radical interaction with those who are sick in heart. Jesus is saying, you've seen my power and authority now I'm going to show you God and how to love like God. And I'm going to show you who I love. I'm hanging out with them because I want to see change in them. I don't accept what they're doing. They need help. This was the message of Jesus. I've come not to become like them or to accept what they're doing. I've come because they need a physician, because they need spiritual help. It was intentional, it was strategic, and they were not his closest circle of friends. Jesus says, religion says, stay away from them, stay away from that, stay away from those people. But Jesus says, build relationship with them, but don't allow yourself to get in a holy bubble. Religion says people love people after they change. Jesus says, love them so that they can experience change. A physician only helps those who are sick. So I have a question for you. Are you sick? Because you can't know him until you realize you are. Here's the second accusation, and that is you don't do things the way we do them. You don't fast like us, Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. His response is kind of tricky. It's in Mark chapter 2, verse 19. His response is, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. Now you're like, what? Guys, here's the custom. Say I'm getting married. The, the week from my wedding basically is a week-long party, uh, a godly party, a week-long festival of fun and food and celebration. All right? The week before I get married. It's, not, it's, no, it's no bachelor party night. It's like a week-long all right, and basically during that week-long celebration, you don't have to fast because you're with the, with the bridegroom. You're with the bride or the groom, and you get to celebrate. And so you're free. You're, you're um, 
exempt from religious holidays and fasting. Um, and so Jesus says, you know what, this is, like, this is like a wedding, all right? And you're exempt from fasting. He says for two reasons. He says, number one, because there's a celebration going on. Number two, because I'm here. Because he says this, you fast to reach out to God. But you don't need to because I'm here. He says this, but the time will come, however, when the bridegroom, that's me, will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. He says, there's going to come a day. He knew the cross was coming even then. He says, there's going to come a day when I'm going to die, and that's the day you can fast. But until then, my disciples don't need to fast for God because they're walking with him. It's a significant declaration of his divinity when he said this. Now, this was not enough of the answer, and then he really gets to the heart of you and me. And he talks about selling and alcohol. (laughs) Listen to this. He loses them, and some of you too, when he says this in the next verse. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Well, you're like, what does that even mean? Well, if you weren't lost, he reels him back in by talking about alcohol. He says, uh, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. So he gives some sewing tips and some uh, fermentation tips. He says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, you might be wondering, what does that mean? even mean? Any of this even mean? See, here's what a wineskin is, by the way, and I'll explain the the sewing tip here in a minute. The wineskin is this. Uh, They didn't have bottles and, 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 you know, they didn't keep things in jars and jugs. They they, they did keep them in big jars, uh, but but around the house, they kept a lot of wine in wineskins, and these were basically skinned goats, whole skinned goats, where they kept all the skin together, and then they would sew it together and form a jug, a a wine skin jug, and they would fill that up with the wine. Now, as they filled it up with grape juice, as it began to age, it would ferment, releasing gases, causing the wine skin to expand. Now, it was usable about two times. About two times because after it stops expanding, if you keep putting new wine into it, it will burst. So the answer is you can't keep using an old wineskin to put new fresh wine in. You have to put it in a new wineskin. And this is what he says. Jesus is saying this. Here's the big idea is that Jesus is saying that he is bigger than our plans and our agenda. Your religious systems, he says, will never fit me. He says, I'm like new wine, and he tells the Pharisees, you're like the old wine. You're like the old wineskin, and I'm like the new wine. I don't fit your paradigm. I'm bigger than some sort of patch on your life. And when you stop growing, and when you stop listening, and when you stop allowing the Holy Spirit to change you, you will burst. And he says, that's what's happening. A quick patch of Jesus over the issues of your life will not fit, and it will ruin your life. A little bit of Jesus is not what you need. You need all of him. Just adding some Jesus to your life can ruin you. Your old wineskin life has got to be changed out. You need 
to be ready to grow and expand, Jesus expects us to change out the wineskin. If you're not willing to have me change you, Jesus says, completely, then it won't work. You'll just rip and burst. I'll ruin your life. So when you're through growing, you're through. Jesus does not do part-time lives. He's full-time only. Here's the third accusation in his response. The third accusation is, you don't follow the rules, Jesus. You don't follow the rules. You're healing and you're picking food on the Sabbath. Come on, that's unlawful. You don't follow religion the way that we follow religion. You break the rules. His response, verse 25 and 26 of chapter 2, he says, he begins by telling a story about King David. And he says, David and his friends ate consecrated food even though it was against the law. So basically he tells that story because he says this is the heart of God. It's this, this is not a new law. This is the way it's always been. And he says this in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of even the Sabbath. Then he, when he healed the man on the Sabbath, this is what he said. He says, then Jesus asked him, which is, uh, which is unlawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill. But they remained silent. Basically he's saying people are more important than tradition. People are more important than the rules. Here's the big idea that kind of broke uh, the, the, the Pharisees at this. The bigger idea is that Jesus is bigger than our rules and our religion. Religion is about regulations. Religion is about systems and demands. Jesus is about a relationship, and Jesus is about people. This is huge. Because the Pharisees were all about following, 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 following rules, regulation, the law, at the expense of people. And Jesus says, you know, all those Laws, all the things in the scriptures that I give you are because I love people. And what we tend to do is we tend to abuse people with them rather than use them for what God intended. God set those things in place to help and protect and and to care for us, not to control us. What was intended to be a blessing for us, we turn into bondage for people. God's word is designed to protect and not restrict. They are there because he loves you and he cares for you. And for this example, he says, the Sabbath is a day to restore and replenish your spirit. It's not for you to honor the Sabbath. It's because the Sabbath was given so that you might have something that would give you life again at the beginning of the week. See, all of the commands of the Lord are for your benefit, but they're not to be bondage. They're for you. And this is the next accusation, is that you have lost your mind. His own family. And you're like, well, that's his brothers. No, his mom too. Check this out. Mark 3.31, then Jesus' mother, his own mother, Mary, blessed Mother Mary, the one that, you know, is, you know, can do no wrong. Well, she didn't get it either all the time either. She's not God. She's not divine. She's a human being. With a, with a unique and special opportunity to give us the Messiah. She was a person just like any one of you other women in this room. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside, and they sent someone in to call him, and the crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother 
and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here's my mother, here's my brother. My, my true family are those who follow me, like these guys. That's what he was saying. Verse 35, whoever does the will of God, God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Here's what Jesus is saying. The big idea here is that Jesus is bigger than our family's expectations and demands. You don't really know or understand who I am, he was telling his parents. He was telling the crowd. He says, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than, than our family. This is the will of God. Our little bubble of life cannot contain the plan of God. Guys, listen, your family is not the universe in which your life should revolve around. Your relationship with God is the universe in which your life should revolve around. Parents, your kids are not the center of your universe. That is one of the worst places to have your kids be. Your spouse is not the center of your universe. There's only one who should sit on the throne of your life, and that is Jesus Christ and him alone. And all of our schedules bow to the kingdom of God. They bow to Christ. All of our plans, all of our events, all of our hobbies, all of our uh, athletic pursuits, uh, you fill in the blank, all of our musical interests, you, whatever it is, it bows at the feet of Jesus because he is bigger than them all. And, and there are few sacred cows like the family. Guys, listen, my family is more important than any person in this room. There's Jesus, my wife, and my kids. I am pastor to my family. I'm pastor dad and pastor husband before I'm your pastor. And I will easily deny you time to spend time with my family, my first priority. However, I bow before Christ, not my family. I will answer to God for my relationship with him, with or without my family. Following Jesus, following the will of God will not always make sense to your family. Following Jesus uh, means that sometimes you have to even say no to your family. Following Jesus means that sometimes you have to step out in faith and do what your family thinks is crazy. And by the way, his family eventually came around. And his brothers, it wasn't until after he rose from the dead. Here's the last accusation, is that the Pharisees said, Jesus, you're not just crazy. He said, they said, you're demon-possessed. You're possessed by demons, and you're driving out demons by demons. And Jesus' response was simply, you're stupid. <laughs> it is, because this is what he says. He says, so Jesus called them over, and I love this. He says, come here, guys. Come here. I can see him putting his arm around and says, yeah, uh, you're stupid. Um, because he says, he began to call them over, and he began to speak to them in parables. By the way, a parable is not an illustrated message. A parable is given to confuse and to enlighten those that are called by God. And we, under, we find that out later. Um, he says, the parables are not for the lost, the parable for my disciples. They're for those that are following me. But he began to speak in parables to these people that didn't understand it. And he says this, uh, how can Satan drive out Satan? You're stupid. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. By the way, those are good lessons 
in your house. Those are good lessons for a job, for a work, for a team. But in this case, he's talking about demon possession. He says the reality is, is that there really is a very real Satan. Jesus confirms the reality of Satan and demons. They're not just symbols. They're not just, uh, you know, they're not just talking about our, our past or our life. You know, we've all got some personal demons. No, he's talking about literal spiritual attack. And he says, satanic forces, they don't work together <laughs> to change people's lives. And then he says a very real, very strange thing. He says, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, why would he say something like that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit convicts and draws us to God. And without the Holy Spirit, you're lost forever. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And here's the bigger idea is that Jesus is bigger than our issues and our past and our sin. Jesus is bigger than our issues and our past sin. Guys, listen. You don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus when it comes to who he is. You know, these Pharisees were claiming that Jesus was motivated by demonic spirits. And he says, you know what? You are not even hearing the Holy Spirit even just a little. Here's a warning. Blaspheme the Holy Spirit and you're lost forever. Not to cease to exist, but eternal, eternal sin, eternal damnation. He talks about it a little bit deeper in the Gospel of John. Guys, listen, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this. You can push God away and 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 push God away. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no hope for you. Some of you are like, well, how do I know if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? How do I know if I pushed him away too far? How do I know if I pushed him away for too long? How do I know if, he, if he's not done with me yet? I'm worried. I'm worried. What, what if I'm going to go to hell? What if this is the end? What if I'm sitting here and I know I'm lost because I'm not serving God and I'm not even interested? How do I know if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Here's how you know. Are you ready? You care. It's just that simple. If you're sitting here right now, and you're worried that you might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit saying, I am not done with you yet, and God wants you. The fact that you care to even know who God is, that you're concerned about the condition of your spirit, and that you somehow, some way, deep inside, even though you've been pushing God away, that you're just a little bit concerned that maybe you've done something that's beyond his reach, the answer is you haven't. You haven't. Because you care. And the Holy Spirit is still there going, tap, tap, tap. Listen, God's not done with you yet. You know how you know you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? There's no conviction. You don't care. You're done. I want you to know this, that regardless of what you have put your feet to do, put your hands to do, regardless of what you have said, as long as there's something in your heart that says, I want to know him, There is nothing that is too big for Jesus. There is no issue, there is no past that is bigger, that is beyond the reach of the great physician. So I want to wrap it up with this thought. 
as Jesus explains as a warning to those around him, you don't want to be on the wrong side of what God is doing. It will cost you eternity. So who are you today? You're one of four people today. You are either the Pharisees who are lost in rules and religion, ready to change your wineskin perhaps. Maybe you've been a religious, angry Christian or someone who's bound up in religion and you've hated those that were of different, you know, backgrounds or their sin or their struggles and you, you know, you're even furiated by the fact that Jesus would sit with people that you despise. You're a Pharisee, but something inside of you is saying, I need to change. It's time to get that wineskin and make a new one. Maybe you're a Pharisee. Maybe number two, maybe you're Jesus' family resisting what God is doing. Or maybe you're the unclean at the dinner of Jesus going, really, can I be changed? Did you really come for me? Can I really be different? Or perhaps you're like that despised tax collector named Levi that Jesus is facing you today and say, come, I pick you, follow me. You want to know the cool thing about this story? Is that guy named Levi, his name is Matthew. And that tax collector who everybody hated and despised, who was a traitor and the worst of the worst in that culture, became Matthew the disciple. And he wrote the gospel of Matthew. And his account and his passion, his love for Jesus is laid out in a beautiful way in the gospel. Guys, God has a plan, and it's bigger than you can imagine. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are, God, bigger than any hate and judgmental attitude in this room. God, I pray that you'd help us convict us of hate, convict us of racism, convict us of of being judgmental, convict us, Father, of being harsh and mean and negative towards those who are on the outside. God, convict us because you're bigger than that. God, I pray that you'd move in us and work in us, Father, because you're bigger than our plans and our agenda. God, you're bigger than rules and regulation. God, you're bigger, Father, than religion. Father, you're bigger than, than systems of tradition. God, convict us of our, of, our, of our legalistic attitude towards church or towards religion or towards others. God, you are bigger than our families, expectations and agendas and demands. God, convict us of putting our family before you. God, convict us of of setting our agendas around our family rather than around your plan for our life in the kingdom. God, convict us. And Father, I pray that you would convict us of our sin. God, there's not a one here who's done too much for you has gone too far for you. As long as the Holy Spirit is calling them, there's room for them. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I believe God is calling you to follow him today. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He's saying, come, follow me. Even you, the last guy picked in PE, I pick you first. where you're sitting, where you just talk to Jesus right now. He is alive. 
He is risen from the dead, and he is, he is not a historical figure only. He is God who's come and called us to follow. Will you talk to him and say, Jesus, here I am. I will follow. Go ahead in your own words. Jesus, I will follow. I will follow. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. God, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of being judgmental. God, forgive me of being hateful. God, forgive me for, for putting other things on the throne before you. God, forgive me for being religious and being legalistic. God, forgive me. Father, wash me clean of my sin. I will follow. In Jesus' name. I want to encourage you, if you would like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus on the back of that connection card that you got in your worship guide, just fill out your name, maybe a, an email or a phone number, and um, we'll be contacting you this week. I'd love to follow up with you on, on what God is calling you to do. Some of you, it's, 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 it's time. It's time to follow. Father, I pray for everyone here, Lord. Help us. God, to get a hold of your word, let it change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.